So, um, Roger, we um, obviously want to talk to you today about the Poverty Truth Commission, and that's that's something that um, we've talked about quite a bit. But um, for the sake of the podcast, um, perhaps you could just outline what it's all about, you know, and, and maybe tell the story a little bit of your involvement, and we'll go from there. Yeah, um, the Poverty Truth Commission is. Um, a remarkable initiative that uh, comes out of Scotland originally, um, a guy by the name of Martin Johnson, uh, who's the Church of Scotland um, minister, uh, was really moved by the degree of poverty that he was encountering um, in his parish in Glasgow, and um, had uh, been reflecting on the Truth and Justice Commission in South Africa, and how that um, had pretty good success in bringing people together across difference and allowing people to speak truth to power. Um, if, from their context, not so much uh, in terms of poverty, but in terms of racial oppression and discrimination um, and dealing with the past and apartheid and so on. But um, he and those who he was working with began to apply the same kind of principles to... Um, how you can create space in which people with lived experience of poverty can um, speak truth to power on a on a kind of level playing field and uh, in hope that um, cultural and policy change would take place. Mm. And uh, it just it, it kind of sums up a little thumbnail way of describing it uh, is the same kind of um, little anecdote that came out of South Africa, which is nothing about us without us is for us. And so kind of with that in view, they began to head experimentally um, into a process which has now taken place there. I what we describe is around is when you've um, you've begun by uh, finding people in lived experience of poverty, who are willing to uh, meet with one another and with space holders um, and to begin to explore how they would like, who they would like to speak to um, in hope of um, influencing particularly the things that tend to be done to people who uh, are in lived experience of poverty, that might be in lived experience of disability or uh, mental struggles as well. Um, so they, that, that is described as a round when you've formed the relationships and then uh, approach the people that uh, they want to talk to and created something which is called the commission. And those who uh, are the lived experience people, they, they tend to get called something like community commissioners, sometimes they're called testifiers, and then those in positions of influence and power who are willing to be part of um, this um, this kind of level playing field of uh, interrelationship uh, are called civic commissioners. And so that whole thing, first time around, probably took about 18 months to two years um, to kind of complete a process and begin to see some really quantifiable impacts and outcomes. And so then they continued and they had several rounds in Glasgow and... Uh, then some mates of um, mine, in fact, some mates of yours too, uh, I think Miles out of Leeds, Mike Love, people yeah. like that, they, um, they 
they thought, let's go and have a look at what's happening in Glasgow and see if maybe we might do something similar here. And so that's how the Poverty Truth Commission moved on to Glasgow. Um, then there was a question, what would it look like in a mixture of rural and urban, which was why Morecambe Bay became a possible um, third or fourth location. There was a, another location in Salford in the outskirts of Manchester. And these days it's operating um, in probably up to 20 different locations in the UK. So what, what are the sorts of, um, you know, you've got a kind of a dyad there of like the, the, the people that have experienced poverty and then you've got people that, that are somehow involved in the, in the bureaucracies or the, the, the organisations that, that, yeah, could you, could you explain a bit more about the two sides of the equation? And then I think you said there's a third one where there's just people that are involved in facilitating the discussion. Are they the civic ones? Is it, yeah. Yeah, I mean, it, now that it's happened quite a few times and there have been, um, I don't know, I mean, I think there's probably been seven or eight rounds in Glasgow, maybe yeah. more. And, um, you know, we're on round two here. They're on round three in Leeds. Um, and as I say, it's happening in lots of other places. And there's now a kind of um, central facilitation um, grouping as well as local facilitation groupings in each place. But when I use this phrase facilitation grouping, basically some people with a heart to, um, to see an alleviation of poverty uh, then, then take the initiative. And so it's, it's they that kind of hold the space, attempt to find community commissioners who are willing to tell their stories um, and then in a relationship with them to then begin to say, like, who are the kinds of people they'd like to talk to? Typically, it's going to be someone locally who's got some sort of influence over um, DWP, yeah. um, Department of Welfare and so on. It's going to be people in the NHS because many people are interfacing with uh, hospitals locally and their doctors and so on. It's going to be local councillors. It's going to be um, local business leaders whose businesses clearly impact so they're often service industries, like, for example, around here, it'd be Stagecoach, buses, um, yep. it would be United Utilities, um, who are the water people around here, um, uh, or, or electricity, yep. gas, all the kinds of things that people are interfacing with, and obviously also members of parliament, um, and so on. So yep. the, the task of the people who've set out to initiate this who get called the startup group and then once it gets going uh, a, a small portion of those will be the facilitators um, they're kind of one set of people and that's a very critical set because they have to be very sensitive to their own inbuilt um, kind of someone like me white male viewed as middle class all my roots are working class but obviously I'm positioned in a middle class way and just being aware of those um, some would say advantages some would say uh, dangers of patriarchy and oppression so you have to be really aware of those things of uh, making sure that there is uh, uh, you know within, within the, the, the working group facilitation team you've got people representing a wide um, kind of uh, experience of life and then um, the way it goes is that 
people in that facilitation team like me would have some folk in mind in the locality who are in positions of influence that we anticipate the community commissioners, that's the people with lived experience of poverty, might well want to talk to, but we, we, don't, we don't invite them and put them in position. It's because we're reversing the way that power has, tends to flow. Yeah. It's the community commissioners that are going to need to do that. But, but we do need to make sure we've got some likely um, candidates kind of lined up, warmed up, ready for when the community commissioners want to launch the commission and want to find the, those uh, people in positions of influence or power. So yeah. or, there's a lot of preparation, which is why it takes kind of uh, probably at least a year before you launch, because you've got to have got all the kind of um, ducks in a row. Yeah, well, it sounds amazing. Um, I mean, just just a sort of reflection on it. The the um, I guess the current sort of power structures or systems are anything but organic, really. If you if you stand back and look about look at it, and, and what I specifically. Um, well, I guess what what you're describing makes makes me think of is is a much more organic model, and and um, I specifically mean in terms of just like the human body, the fact that we have a, a head, an actual head, you know, and, and and the top front bit of your brain is is where your executive function is. That's where decisions are made. So you'll decide to you know walk over there and do this or do that because um, <clears throat> that's what executive function, you know, takes initiative and takes decisions. But actually, what we've, as we find out more about neuroscience, what we're discovering is that the, the, the main uh, nerve that we have that transfers information up and down the body is the, is the vagus nerve. And the, the way that that functions is that there's 80% of the information passing between the brain and the body is coming from the body and informing the brain. And only 20% is coming down to give these executive commands. And it's based on the information that's come up from, from underneath. So, yeah, I think that our, our systems have, have, have been violently antithetical to that insofar as we've got, we've got positions of power that don't listen. <clears throat> so this, what you're describing here, is trying to redress that and create a situation where there's a whole lot of information coming up to people in positions of power to inform what they do and how they do it. Yeah, it is basically a living system as opposed to an organisational structure model. That that yeah. would be hundred percent right. Yeah. So. Can you give some um, examples of, of um, yeah, what's happened with these commissions with with particular people and organisations? Yeah, um, I my examples will come from Morecambe Bay Poverty Truth Commission because that, that's the one I can talk about with any integrity. Yeah. Um, but we've been, I think it'd be fair to say, pretty blown away by the impact of. Um, of, of this approach and and the outcomes 
um, you know, we, we, it's kind of slow burn. And so we anticipated it might be quite difficult to point to any definite outcomes from the first round. Um, and that didn't necessarily worry us because we, you know, we really believed it was going to be a slow process and that this kind of living system model is not something um, that, you know, fits in with the, the kind of um, commodified neoliberal governmental approach, which wants results by, you know, at least in six months time, otherwise, you know, no, no grants, no, no, no successful bids for funding and, and such like. In actual fact, we found things move much, much faster than we assumed they would. Uh, ironically, kind of almost uh, somewhat paradoxically, as a result of moving slowly, we got further faster. Um, whereas, you know, the, 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 the kind of approach we're all very familiar with in education and probation and, um, uh, and health and the like is everlasting reorganizations, restructurings that uh, in the end don't really touch the deep structure of people's lives at all. So a couple of examples would be, for example, that um, one of our um, community commissioners who was um, a guy, um, you know, had been in prison, um, had been, was a recovering addict, um, homeless and uh, all those things very recently um, before we we met them um, one of the things he wanted to change the most was uh, the the way in which if you if you if you're a recovering addict you know and you've you've been on a recovery program or you're someone that's coming out of prison um, initially not as often as one would like to be the case, but nevertheless, quite often, there is some support immediately you come out of prison or immediately you're, you're um, coming out of recovery. But then once you get to the point where, let's say, um, you've, been, you've been a homeless addict and you, you're in recovery and then someone finds ultimately you are flat, so you come out of a, off the street, out of a hostel, and it looks like success is coming your way, as it were, then suddenly you realise you're stuck in a, a flat, um, you're on credit, universal credit, and so you can't get a proper job because if you do, every time you get one, it's usually insecure at first. So your sanctions, you, you know, come in, and before you know it, you you're in debt, um, and and then you've got no friends, nobody, nowhere to go. The obvious thing to do is go back to the bottle or back to the drugs or, and then you're back to the street. And, and so this, um, this commissioner worked out just how many scores of thousands of pounds each individual that happens to costs um, the, the various um, institutions of local government or the like. So their idea was, well, why don't we befriend people? And so... Um, that was one of the outcomes of the working group on, on welfare and homelessness, um, quite literally a charity set up called Let's Be Friends. And that, that charity was, um, is now, um, it was set up by two community commissioners um, and is now, a, a, you know, employing a, a development worker and is a serious 
local charity that you can just measure how many people um, haven't fallen off the wagon, um, or if they do, they, there's the support there to, to help them through. Um, another example would be um, we had community commissioners from the local traveller and gypsy community. Um, and uh, wh when we launched the public launch, um, they, they weren't able to speak at it. They, but they were prepared to be, you can see actually all this online and you can, you can, you can watch some short videos that show this, but um, th they said, we will write what, what our experience has been and we'll stand next to someone who can, who, if someone will read it out for us, but there's no way we don't feel the weight of oppression. We can't, we, we just can't do it yet. So to begin with, that's how it was. And then it came to light that um, the, the county council, Lancashire County Council, um, who had, um, who owned the site that they'd been living on for uh, 20 odd years, had decided to sell it to the highest bidder and that they would all be made homeless. Um, and it was obvious that, you know, we'd got to, we got to stand with these um, folk and we did. And uh, the result was, and it, it would take too long to tell the story, but it was one of the most moving things I've ever been involved in, that we found ourselves at a local council meeting at which several of our civic commissioners who were councillors or who were council officers in the housing department of the council, of our local city council this was, um, a, a, a proposal was made that the local city council would fork out £1.2 million and purchase this site off of the county council. But, but just as an aside here, it's a, it's a fairly wild way that local authority works. It's not as bad as central government, but my word, it's pretty mental. But anyway, in the final analysis, um, the site was bought and now belongs it was bought, but it was bought not um, as something that the council, city council can then do what they want with. It was bought on behalf of the travelling community and they now have secure homes. So, so this, yeah, that story you've just told. So obviously you've given us the, uh, the beginning and the end and it's a long story. But um, I'm just I'm just imagining because like with with reference to the um, I think most people know a little bit about the Truth and Reconciliation committee in, in um, South Africa, where you had, we, we had this situation, which basically the same of people having to hear each other's stories. And like, there's a lot of um, images of, you know, people weeping and being un unable to speak because, you know, in that space of listening, people are deeply moved by suddenly being able to understand what it's like to be in that other person's shoes. And, haven't heard that story. I'm just, I'm just imagining there must have been some moments like that um, with, with this, for, you know, for a council to do something as radical as that to, to shell out 1.2 million to, uh, to buy this piece of land. Um, it just, yeah, sounds, sounds amazing. I think the role of stories and deep listening is really critical to this whole thing. Um, it would be a mistake to say that um, the council meeting at which that decision was made was not quite a difficult meeting. 
um, because obviously there were councillors who were totally opposed to this. And um, the amount of um, sheer discrimination and um, <clears throat> hate right near the surface was emerging in that meeting from those who were opposed to giving any space or grace to the travelling community. And obviously, you can find, um, as, as with all these things, um, negative stories to tell about the travelling community, just like we can find negative stories to tell about the Tory MP. You know, it's like you can find it on kind of, if there are sides, both sides of the tracks, as it were. But what was um, so wonderful was how um, the, our um, civic commissioner who was representing Lancaster University, who was the head of the sociology department, Imogen Tyler, um, she spoke um, on behalf of the travelling community um, and then um, the local, uh, one of the local councillors um, who's since become leader of the council, um, but who um, at the time was um, a, a kind of green activist who no one would have expected would ever become leader of the council. And without telling the story of how she did, um, she would put the Poverty Truth Commission quite central in that story. So, um, you know, but, it, but in the end, it is the, the deep listening that changes people's minds and hearts, or sometimes a bit like uh, the cross of Christ and the kind of the ministry of Jesus, it, it brought out the worst in people too. Um, because deep listening and stories really get to the heart, don't they? Yeah. Um, I mean, I guess I'm thinking about that, the, 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 the traveller community. I've, yeah, I've sort of read recent stuff in the newspapers and, and um, well, I've just been aware to a limited extent of, you know the the, the plight of traveller communities going back quite a long time in in our country, and in a way, it's the nearest thing we've got to an indigenous people group clashing with the uh, the sort of settlers. <laughs> yeah. Because you know there are people that have traditional ways of life, um, which has gradually been squeezed and squeezed and squeezed it you know it used to be that you know gypsies could turn up and graze their horse on the green or different things that they might do and and the sort of vilification and and the and the the, the, the gradual removal of places where they could stop having a you know an itinerant lifestyle a nomadic lifestyle that they just do the rounds and bit by bit those places have have been lost meaning that people have had to become settled um, and it is it is a cultural genocide in that sense, one that one that we wouldn't think we have that going on here. Um, so, um, I mean, yeah, I don't know if this came up, but but I, I remember reading years ago um, an article where some travellers were were talking about why they don't send their kids to school. Yeah, you know, and you've got people going into those communities saying, you, you know, your your kids should come to school because this, because that, because the other. And this article was making the case for 
but then refusing to do it, saying, well, people were saying, well, there's Billy over there. He doesn't know how to live, read and write, but he does know how to cut a piece of wood and, and make this and, and do that because he stays here and it's just part of... Anyway, it's just, just a... That's just a... Um, I mean, uh, discrimination's real, no question. And the, the current, I forget the name of the bill, but the current planning bill that is going through uh, Parliament at the moment is hugely discriminatory um, towards um, the travelling and gypsy community because it makes it illegal for them um, just to kind of stop for a few nights uh, on a piece of ground. Um, you know, they have to have planning permission. It has to be agreed that that's where they can stay, which obviously immediately um, dismisses the reality of the um, gypsy and travelling people as a um, as a peripatetic community. Right. Yeah. As a distinct culture that. that yeah. That sees things differently and, and, and lives in a different way. Yeah. So it's. Yeah, that's, I mean, that's quite, well, it's disturbing, isn't it, to think that at this point we're, we're, we've, we've got powers that are still putting the squeeze on a different um, way of life that, that, is, that is up to now even had a tiny bit of breathing space within our, within our country. Um, but, yeah, so... But where does this, I mean, for you, where does this come from? You, you mentioned Jesus just now. Um, like, for you, in terms of your um, spirituality, where does, where, does that, where does that fit in? Yeah. Um, I mean, my, my understanding of um, what families, nations, people groups are for is rooted um, in my um, in my kind of Christian biblical background. So my understanding of um, say Israel in the Old Testament, um, in its founding um, mythologies, and by the way, I use the word mythology neutrally. By that, it doesn't mean I think something wasn't true, or necessarily was literally true. Uh, but in that founding mythology of God speaking to Abraham. Um, which I has the ring of truth for me. Um, it, it's um, if as a result of a covenant relationship between God and Abraham, I'll bless you, and you will be a blessing, and through your seed, all the families of the earth will be blessed. And that's a bottom line for me. So you know, if um, if one must take that and then apply it to the nation state of Israel today, the question is, um, in Jerusalem and in Israel today, are all the families of the earth getting blessed? Answer, right. gosh, something terrible went wrong. Which doesn't mean um, that we should have any prejudice against the Jews, but it might make us question what in the world um, kind of happened when a nation state can become a means of oppression for people who are not from the majority um, grouping. And then similarly, then if I apply that to my um, background in the Christian church, 
then the question again becomes, how did Christianity, um, if, if it's the fulfillment um, in Jesus Christ of that blessing to all the families of the earth um, reference that I've just made, then um, how come it becomes a kind of exclusive story about how um, if you don't... Um, if you don't believe what a particular group of apparent followers of Jesus believe, um, then um, you, you, you know, you're going to end up at some crazy future apocalyptic um, moment, um, kind of destroyed and burning in hell. Like, okay, how is that the result of blessing all the families of the earth? So for me, um, trying to understand what it was that the, the Jesus story, um, what we call the gospel within Christianity, what its impact really was on um, the families and nations of the earth becomes really, really important. And so um, for me, um, investigating that, and that, that led me ultimately um, to return to university, do a PhD on the matter, um, and then try and apply it, that that has led me into uh, my engagement with the Poverty Truth Commission, because it seems to be um, thoroughly expressive of the kingdom of God. But plenty enough people who get involved in the Poverty Truth Commission um, are people of other faiths or none. Um, so, so that's not to say that um, it is a Christian Christian faith initiative um, in that what's generally accepted as the definition of that. But in terms of my understanding of it, it is. I think it might be nice for you to say a bit about your um, your thoughts around Kennecke, which was which was the the uh, ultimate output of the PhD you did. If, if I understand it correctly, yeah. Yeah, I mean, um, a lot of what I've been saying, by the way, obviously um, can be accessed. Um, so, you know, all, all the stuff I've just been talking about in practical terms of the Poverty Truth Commission, um, there's plenty out there to do an online search. There's a, um, there's a Morecambe Bay Poverty Truth Commission website. It's got all kinds of good stuff on it, Facebook page and the like. And similarly, um, I'm just about to make some comments about um, Kennecke. And there is, uh, for those who want to kind of pursue it academically, theologically, um, it, uh, at uh, www.kennecke.org, you can find the Kennecke Journal. And that spells out really what um, the last kind of, I suppose, really, it is about 17 years of work that a bunch of us have been doing. So while um, I've put a lot of the kind of research energy into it, it's definitely been something that I've been doing together with and to some extent on behalf of a sort of growing gang of friends. Um, but just to quickly say what, um, what that was about, it was really asking the question, how come, given the radical nature of um, the Jesus you encounter in Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. Um, Christianity 
ended up in throughout centuries and centuries of what we call Christendom um, in, a, in a kind of holding hands with empire and uh, and kind of hierarchical top-down um, uh, rich powerful state leaders um, how did that happen and what would radical kind of politics of love that seems to sum up what Jesus was about what would that look like um, in response yeah. and so my my research work was tracking um, that partnership of church and empire throughout history since the fourth century and then um, and then trying to um, look at what um, applied theologians and thinkers and others um, uh, right across the board from expressly Christian to those that do seem to be handling um, kind of a Christian kind of vision and um, heart. Um, and as we were looking at that, we started to ask the question, gosh, is there a way of describing the kingdom of God or the politics of Jesus um, that kind of comes up deliberately with at first a fairly opaque and new word, we, you know, make people prick their ears up maybe, and won't be um, too difficult to use among people who've got real reasons to be very negative towards how they've experienced the church. Um, and then we came up with this word, kenarchy, the archy bit, I think everyone, what that's about, you know, we're familiar with, um, with monarchy, the garchy and democracy and all the rest of it. But this... Yeah, it basically means um, how, how to organise the polis, the people, um, or the way that they are framed and shaped and configured. But the kenarchy bit comes from um, a Greek word, which is specifically used by Paul in the New Testament, probably drawing on an early Christian um, in Philippians 2, which, um, you know, let the end be in you. Uh, it begins with, if there is any encouragement in love, like if love does work, if there's anything in that, then let this mind be in you that was also in Christ Jesus. Although he was in the form of God, didn't think it would be robbery to be called equal with God, emptied himself and took on the form of a servant. And that word emptied or poured out is the word keno. And uh, so there, there's a lot of work out there called kind of kenotic theology, kenotic thinking, which is about what it looks like if we empty out power or pour out power on behalf of others. But particularly anarchy, um, is basically suggests the very nature of, of the divine is um, to pour out power and love on behalf of the others. So if you're familiar with that hymn, anyone listening, um, he, he took on himself the form of a servant, became a human, took on himself the form of a servant, became obedient to death, even death on a cross, and it, it positions being ready to die for your enemies, if you like, the, the ultimate love. And then it ends up, wherefore God has highly exalted him and given him a name above every name, that at the name of Jesus every knee should bow. And, and the kind of classic empire Christianity has said, well, God became a human being um, to kind of um, woo us all, but actually 
um, after he'd done that, um, now you know we don't we don't have to suffer for our sins um, if we if we choose to uh, believe. Um, and and but now you know God's back on top again. And when the end time comes, woe betide us all if we if we don't believe right. Um, but actually, what we what we reckon, and it seems obvious if you one reads through the Gospels, is when it's saying wherefore God has highly exalted him, God's exalted that downward outpouring love on behalf of others. So actually, that that kind of high exalting is turning the world upside down, like uh, Donald Craybill's book, The Upside Down Kingdom. Right. right. So Kenneke is about really um, turning the hierarchical um, political structures of empire and nation state all down the generations upside down. Probably one of the best known examples, I know it's not a perfect example, um, but an example most people would have some knowledge of in the history of the church would be St. Francis of Assisi, right? It's, yeah. As someone who, um, you know, was the son of a rich merchant and, and relinquished all his wealth and power. And as, as far as I'm aware, he, he set up a bit of a, um, a domino effect all across Europe with lots of other young people who, who are stood to inherit vast amounts of wealth, who then yeah. relinquished their wealth and gave it to the poor and, and set up um, an amazing movement, like the, the, the Franciscans who, who then sort of flooded Europe like a bunch of hippies. <laughs> The stories about them coming to Folkestone near us, and and they were, they were kind of considered as as hippies were in the sixties because they're so countercultural, and walking barefoot, and and um... yep. for sure, for sure. In fact, um, so much, that's so right that um, in the my my um, research work covered like four what I call conduits or windows on empire in history. Um, and uh, the, the second big window was around the time of Francis of Assisi. And so um, I did, I've done a lot of work on and research on Francis and um, my book, Church Gospel Section, on that. And you're right, what a kind of amazing initiative. Um, and I talk about a kind of love stream that went all the way despite the the kind of the, the constant revert reversal to to fit in with empire um francis was a was a great example of exactly you know what you're talking about of a politics of love um and and what is particularly amazing is he was actually as a young person before um what you've just described happened um he was off to the crusades um, to um, fight the Muslims um, and uh, and and get back um, Jerusalem, and on the way, he had a vision of Christ and the cross, which was he interpreted exactly the reverse to the way that Constantine interpreted the vision he had at uh, the Battle of uh, of Milvian Bridge, because um, it was a cross, and in this sign we conquer, and for. Francis, it was, oh gosh, so we don't conquer through this sword and, and the other weaponry I'm carrying right now off to battle. And so we turned around, went home, dumped it all. And that's when he also then um, uh, 
um, some of his father's um, uh, material to, um, to rebuild rebuild a church, which then became the place ultimately, um, which he and then uh, nearby um, Claire, they, they, they developed what became the Franciscan movement. But sad to say, um, what he never did was remotely critique the imperial heart of Catholicism at the time, or what was actually the church at the time. So while um, it was a fantastic kind of alternative expression of it, he utterly refused to um, critique um, uh, those in positions of power. Um, And uh, so I would say that um, this happens again and again and again, basically. And I I won't, um, you know, I, I just, honor and bless Francis as a and all the good things we hear about him but actually when it comes to deep and lasting change actually the Franciscans became quite a serious um, movement um, used by the papacy um, before too many generations had gone by um, in quite negative ways although thank god today there's some great Franciscans about yeah no certainly there's there's a lot of um there's a lot of stories to tell about how the you know the invasion of North America had um, Spanish Franciscans right at the forefront. Mm. So yeah, certainly um, certainly didn't carry the heart. And as you say, perhaps perhaps in a way it did did unfortunately carry the heart because where where we <clears throat> where we don't actually stand up and and critique the power to the very heart then and we're complicit with it. So I guess in that sense, Francis was complicit. Which is what, just to kind of circle back, um, while who knows where the Poverty Truth Commissionment yeah. will go in a few years' time, um, uh, and I would say we're always, whenever we do something that begins to make a change and things shift, the danger is it all gets repossessed, kind of like recolonized. That happened yet, but we really need to be constantly um, watching out that it doesn't. It's like um, uh, lived experience, um, in, engagement of service users in policy formation um, is, is, is kind of becoming normalised. And yeah. therefore, once it gets normalised, it ceases to come across this shape into the organizational structure and begins to be to uh, away from being a living system and into being um, part of the um, or, or begin to shape alongside the organizational structures in order to get money to get recognition and so on so I think that that was really what happened to the Franciscans and it, we need to always be careful that that isn't happening to us well, it's it's like it's like the Who song, isn't it? Won't get fooled again. You know, meet the new boss, same as the old boss. It's it's just it's just so easy for things to revert to type, and it's, especially since we're engaging with the system. You know, we're going in there to the system, but 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 unfortunately, as with Constantine swallowing up the sort of radical early Christianity by saying, "Oh, won't you come in and sit down?" We we actually you know we want you to be part of what we're doing. That's that's the most deadly moment really and yet if if you're um if you're sort of beleaguered from as the early church was many years of persecution and p- people being martyred and so on you know you're a bit weary 
the idea that someone opens the door and says, oh, why, why don't you come in? You know, we, 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 yeah. it's so seductive. It's so seductive. But, but I think, I think the, um, one of my favorite quotes, um, well, it's about Jesus, not from Jesus, but um, one of the uh, things that was spoken about him when he was tiny, I think to Mary, said, this child is set for the falling and rising of many. In Israel, which which speaks Brilliant. very much the same the same as this poverty truth that you know the high powers, with all of their abuse and 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 force and domination, will be deconstructed and brought down, and the, and those who've not been listened to and not given space will be brought up. But the but the thing is, even though Mary is being told you're going to bring this amazing person that will bring these writing of wrongs into being, you are going to be the conduit through which this child comes. But 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 she's told, but a sword will pierce through your own soul also. And I think this is this is the thing that we have to keep close to our hearts, you know. Yeah, I, I think that the Magnificat, uh, which you were kind of quoting there, um, particularly um, pulls down the mighty from their thrones and um, exalts those i think it's the nasb bible that says of low estate and certainly um, down the years there's someone from a council estate <laughs> it was always kind of there was a kind of a little bit of irony about exalts those off lowly estates and uh, and then of course there's the whole issue of redemption and lift how we make sure that um, the blessing of all the families of the earth is not just simply taken to ourselves as a, as a, you know, I don't know if it's okay to say this on your podcast, but the working class can kiss my ass. I've got the former's job at last. You know, that approach um, yeah. Yeah. is always the humongous danger and to continue throughout life to seek to be, um, pouring it out while at the same time knowing making a judgment on what what God is blessing us with it's quite a challenge yeah well I, I mean I personally think that that the answer lies in keeping everything you know like keep just engaging with the, the, the organic metaphors that we have before our eyes assuming that we do and what I mean by that yeah. is if, you know, if we live in the city and we just think about machines and computers and, 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 and economics and these form our metaphors, they're not mirroring back to us what we need. And, and, and like the, the cycles of the seasons, to my mind, are, are, where, are where we find the, the answers or the tools that we need. Um, because like the falling and rising that, that's talked about in that, you know, organic matter falls and rises. So that which is exalted now... Mm -hmm. It's coming down, you know. The leaves are falling now in the autumn. I've been thinking a lot lately um, because I've been doing lots of walks around fungi, and you end up describing the thing that happened. Fantastic. And then, yeah, and then thinking about the um, the metaphors. So, so what fungi do is that they they're masters of enzymes. So we have the leaves falling down, but these structures will still sit there. The old structures that need to be dissolved so that the life can continue, that the, the flow of nutrients can carry on in the cycles of life. And if it wasn't for fungi releasing these enzymes, that would never happen. But they do that. They break these things down. They break these fixed structures down. 
And, and I, I stood with a circle of people the other day with just doing this kind of meditation that someone else was leading and then reflections were, were, were requested. And, and the reflection that, well, the question that I came up with is, you know, how can we follow that lead? You know, if, if fungi are doing that in an organic system, how can we let them be our elders and, and teachers that we too have this kind of enzymatic function that will break down the rigidity and, and, and let things return? And what, 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 um, what came to me a couple of days after pondering that was for us to, to, to occupy that role is to, is to offer up all our certainties that we never reach a point where the way we see it is not um, open to question. And we put ourselves in the position. And I think like it's trying to, re re so you're talking about the, the, the potential for the, uh, the truth and reconciliation, not the uh, poverty truth, to in a sense become institutionalized, become like a, a machine that we have a methodology here and now we use it to get funding and we use it to, you know, but, but somehow that the heart of that, that thing of, 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 of terribly sort of vulnerable um, speaking and, and very, very brave, you know, even reluctant, but very brave listening to hear the thing that would get you to change your view. You know, that somehow that, that, that context that you've been part of in the truth and uh, poverty truth thing is that it is a place where the autumn leaves can fall down and, and the things can move and not, not be fixed. And, and then, you know, there's a, there's a, uh, an exchange that goes on that then fosters a new beginning. But the point is, how do we, you know, how do we make sure that, that, that there's always a new beginning? Because, you know, in, in summer, autumn, spring and winter, you know, there is always a new beginning. We, we start again. So how do we, uh, you know, so we move ourselves out of that living system when we institutionalize things. But, but, but there's a thing with this listening space that you're talking about, this, this, it's a speaking and listening. It's, I think it's, it's important to say it's a speaking and listening space, isn't it? Someone's got to speak and someone's got to listen. But, but to, okay. to have that space, that space, the, or not even, it's the space and it's the dynamic that's in that space. How do you, how do you, how do you ensure that that's something you know and of course in indigenous cultures it was ensured they had culture that supported the ongoing centrality of that kind of space it's really interesting what you're saying miles uh, just intrigues me because just this past weekend um we had a, a little bunch of people here in silverdale at the friary um listening to Mike Love's um, research work uh, just to rather like people did with my PhD trying to help him forward and he is quite self-consciously further exploring Kenneke particularly how it applies to um, seeing like a city rather than seeing like a state and without going into the details of that there, be, there, there is um, an is, written an article for us for the Kennedy Journal for um, the beginning of 2022. But um, what, what intrigues me is that um, we spent the afternoon, as we usually do um, on these uh, little events, um, walking um, out in the area here 
and in, in the um, limestone pavement woodlands and ancient grasslands here um, fungi are absolutely staggering and so you can't walk at this time of year without just breathtaking sites yeah. And we found ourselves in a conversation about fungi, rather like you've just been uh, pushing us forward with um, and what it means that we should be like that. Um, and it made me um, reflect that, you know, we, who's leading who when it comes to the fact that we're beginning to recognise living systems? You know, some people say, oh, well, that's why we notice um, the fungi. Um, but maybe it, it, noticing the fungi and understanding that trees talk to one another is actually a sign of somehow something shifting that we're beginning to um, recognise that that same lead that's vested in, um, in the created world is something that we need to recover and um, begin to model our lives on within... Um, the Anthropocene. So it just intrigues me. And I, I love what you were saying there, and we need to go further with it. The whole kind of um, mycelium effect, my word, if we can be like that from kind of town to town and um, podcast to podcast. Yeah. Well, yeah, I mean, mycelium in itself is, is extraordinary because you have like a million spores that are all separate individuals. And then within a few moments of those spores beginning to produce individual hyphal cells. The hyphal cells touch and fuse. So what was a million individuals suddenly becomes one organism and is forevermore after that. They never, they never fragment. It, it's, wow. it's, um, but like you say, yeah, it is, it is like the, um, the creation is, 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 is speaking in that sense. Mm. So we, we've got another kind of speaking and listening situation, but, um, I mean, I the pandemic too, in a more negative yeah. way, but that's another sign of the same, it seems to me. Yeah, something's got to stop. You can't carry on doing it like this. But, 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 yeah. but, but you know what? I think, I think, because you could hear that and say, oh, what you mean is like the land, you know, the earth as mother, all, all these kind of things is, is, uh, is talking to us and, and like, in a, in a way, giving us a bit of a ticking off, you know, like, but, and, and I think that's, that is true in a way, but my, my biggest sense with it all is, is if, if, if the land is saying one thing, it's come back, you know, rather than giving us a lecture. And, 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 and on the other hand, it is a two-way listening process. I think that, that land and creation is is much like you know well the, the the father and the prodigal son story you know that we are in a terrible mess you know and we all know as as fathers or mothers you know that if our children come into a place that, 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 that there could be some sort of contact even if they've run away <laughs> but the first thing we want to do is hear hear their story you know so I, I I I have this sense that land is 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 listening to our you know it's almost it's almost like the you know the biblical thing not 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 land but God a biblical thing where you know I've heard their groaning and come down you know with with the uh, 
the Israelites in in um, in in Egypt under slavery. You know? I mean, that lines up very intriguingly, doesn't it, with what Paul says in Romans eight, that the whole of creation is groaning, waiting yeah. for the revelation of the sons of God. So, I think for me, it's that coming together of um, what we in our kind of is it metaphorical way of seeing things but you know what's down and what's up but actually god is under as well as over you know the eternal god is where we live the deuteronomy puts it and underneath are the everlasting arms and so um as i understand it uh, i see the creation as an extension of the arms of god because uh, he created they created uh, the created world so there, it's like the coming together of the two. It's extraordinary. I'm, I'm actually, um, uh, among other things I do at the minute, I'm writing a series of novels. And okay. um, so the, I was just exploring this very morning before I engaged in this conversation. Um, I was just kind of expanding this um, story of this guy um, hearing, the, hearing the voice of the land. So it's interesting. And also the voice of God. Yeah. Yeah, I mean, I, I increasingly think about the idea of creation. You know, if, if we have um, a benign God that creates, then this creation must be benign. You know, that's, I don't know, that's, I, I feel like that sort of continues to dawn on me, really, that, like, every molecule must be pregnant with kindness every bit of matter must be listening you know it's because yeah otherwise it's, it's someone um, else's stuff you know if it's if it's if god's kind and this is his stuff or her stuff um yeah yeah and i mean obviously that has huge challenges when it comes to how we deal with um, tragedies and evils and diseases but um I think Tom Ord's book, The Uncontrolling Love of God, I'd really recommend that because it wrestles with these issues. But like if every corpuscle and every molecule and every atom is actually um, not, I, I would go further. I, I, I think sometimes the word benign for me means not, um, not toxic. But I, I, I think that, you know, if, if, if the very nature of God is unconditional uncontrolling love then um then you know we, we we've got the most extraordinary ally um or the, or the land has got the most extraordinary allies in us we are we're all after the same thing and therefore the question of how come it seems like there's a random randomness of things that can be ill that happen within the created order or even in you know in our own genetic pool uh, the understanding that Tom puts forward is that actually to make a decision to create out of love always has the risk involved in it, has to have the risk, even at the very kind of cellular centre of it all, organic or inorganic, that, um, that things could be otherwise. So in other words, it's not a determinative uh, thing to create. Creation has got to allow for the possibility um, that people can make wrong choices and that those wrong choices have imp implications and they have implications at every level. Yeah. It's profound stuff, but I think it's important. Yeah, but I think if we, if we see that the, the, the heart of everything is love and, and 
and it is possible to, to to act out of that and then and then and then that we can start understanding a bit more about what 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 love um is in manifestation you know so we have things like uh well a lack of hierarchy for a start and then we have the fact that everything is integrated so so you start using metaphors like you know weaving you know, the the fabric of life and so on which is which is a, a metaphor that most indigenous cultures have something along those lines and um so the the most suffering comes when we move away from from those metaphors basically when when we when we do things which are disintegrating when we do things which which are about individual strands rather than the wovenness of things and when you look at things like disease you know cancer and all the diseases of modern life 100% well not 100% because you know there are small traces of these diseases in traditional cultures but very small um we we see that that, that disintegration is what's happened you know we we've, we've left diets that weave bodies together with the complexity of land you know because the diets are a diverse and b involve relationship with complex ecosystems which then mirror the complexity in our own body so we we start fragmenting you know we have fewer food, fruits which is like having one strand instead of many strands and so how much suffering comes as a result of the diseases of modern life you know most of us wrestling with someone with dementia someone with cancer and and so on and you think well how can there be a god of love etc but 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 you know we've moved away from the fountain we've moved away from that fountain of life which does integrate you know and in and in Romans 8 it says um along with the bit you quoted about the, the the earth groaning for us to be what we really are you know there's that thing that says all things work together for good um and and it's very specific those who 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 are led by the spirit so you know if we if we're led by the spirit then we are involved in this all things working together for goodness you know you see something like hitler coming to power in in germany how many you know how many you know that that to me it just it just shows how dark it can be when we forsake what is given you know and 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 i i think that's where we are now you know there's there's so much forsaking and yet and yet and yet like you know it's no coincidence that you and mike talked about mushrooms because everyone's talking about mushrooms like there's a netflix program right now i don't know if you've seen it like the fabulous fungus that was like a i haven't a, seen it yet but i'm aware uh, of it you're aware of it and right now this is being broadcast to the absolute masses whereas a little while ago it was shown at film festivals and it was a you know it was a little niche thing that was that was launched in in quiet little corners of like-minded people seeing the world slightly differently all of a sudden what you have is is this there's there's like an exudation of insight pouring out of the internet pouring out of out of things like netflix pouring out of magazine articles it's like these things are becoming visible you know and and that's another beautiful thing about fungi is like it's the the unseen realm that becomes visible with 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 mushrooms but the thing is mushrooms come when the right conditions prevail you know it might take a long time and they might be the fungi is invisible for ages because they never have quite the right conditions to produce these mushrooms but the mushrooms drop spores by the trillion you know and and i think right now we we have a situation where these beautiful insights about land and 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 the organic world and living systems and so on they're just 
everywhere oozing out like breast milk to the surface, you know, and people, people are so hungry that, that they like a number of people that have, that have said, oh, I've seen this amazing thing about fungi. People are, you know, they're moved to the core by what they see just, just for a little insight into one aspect of the organic kingdoms and so on. So, you know, I, I just, I just feel like, um, and I guess the other thing I would say, still trying to address this like problem of evil thing that you've slightly raised it's just, you know, the metaphor that, that has come through so strongly through, um, you know, Enlightenment stuff and the Industrial Revolution and, 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 and so on and, and fascism acting on it with, with, a, with, a, with a manifesto, apparently, that science tells us that, that nature is red and tooth and claw. So we're just being true to our nature by being vicious and controlling, you know. But actually, it's an impartial view of the living kingdoms because it's true that there's there's competition and, and, and predation and a certain amount of domination in a few species like baboons in particular um but it's the it's, it's by far the minority what when we see more when we really do shine the light into the into the darkness not the darkness of evil but the darkness of unknowing you know and we begin to know more of what really goes on in living systems what we discover is that it is vastly predominant that things are cooperative and 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 working together. These other things, which which we can hook metaphors of these things onto our notions of evil, you know, the domination and the competition and the and the cruelty, so on. It's 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 very small in comparison. Very, very encouraging, Miles. I think it's um it is so important that um, we enable people to have a perspective of hope at a time like this and a perspective of hope that is not hope against hope, but hope rooted in what um, the creation is saying to us at this time. Yeah. Especially, you know, in a situation where we're so aware of the incredible destructiveness that um, the human race is having on the planet right now. But... Um, the voice of hope coming from the planet is likewise in some ways counter to the extreme cynicism and fear. So I, I think that the, uh, the Poverty Truth Commission is another example of this kind of exudation of hope and, and, and goodness. You know, it's a visible sign, you know, and uh, I love the fact that, you know, it's 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 setting a precedent for hearing what isn't heard and and for the powerful voices of you know the the uh, the DWP or whoever it is the council and so on those voices being silent so they have to listen and kind of reset in the order of things another story briefly told would be that um one of the things that became incredibly obvious as the um, commission got underway is how many people um, who are living currently um, in poverty um, have complex needs and that um, it's impossible to actually pull them undone quite and say kind of what came first. Um, 
but, but people in poverty often have housing issues. Um, they often um, have got mental health issues and they've often got um, physical health issues. Uh, one kind of either mental or physically. And so uh, it became obvious as the uh, as, as we were building relationships and listening to one another that there are certain points at which um, everything becomes worse. So, for example, um, what's called the PIP assessment, which is an assessment that takes place these days to find out whether um, people with disability are kind of ongoingly to be given the level of um, financial support that they get. Yeah. That PIP assessment is one of the greatest causes of mental ill health um, um, among people um, who are in receipt of it. I, you know, I'd assumed if you'd have told me that before we were engaged in the commission, um, that you know there are people who uh, a PIP assessment um, causes them to even you know within a week be statemented, a bit be um, you know um, not sections what happens in school. You know what I mean. Um, yeah, and uh, end up in hospital. And um, but but now we've been involved in the commission. I realise that it's it's just the norm that that's what it does to people. And suddenly you're thinking, talk about a hostile environment these days for people who um, are in need. And so we started to listen to our friends who were in that uh, in that situation, who themselves had the complex needs. And they were saying what they really needed was um, some help at that time by, with someone alongside them who could really speak for them. So, for example, um, if someone is um, having to see someone um, from the mental health sphere, someone, from, um, maybe a hospital consultant, maybe someone in a local charity who um, can provide help to people um, with uh, a variety of problems that complex needs bring about, um, someone who is needing to um, speak to the council about some situation, maybe they can't afford to pay their rent, that they end up within the course of, let's say, even a week, they might have to tell the most traumatic story of their life, like six different times, and, and to people who really don't want to hear anyway who in their heads have got it, you know, this person's a scrounger, a victim, so on. So the idea was, what if we could find, um, it was eventually called a citizen's representative, uh, actually create a role, of someone that would be, um, would be funded and would take on um, people with complex needs um, and take them through um, the whole series of um, issues that they had to deal with would, if net, would would speak for them. Um, would 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 if 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 permissioned by them to do so, go instead of them. That they would have the authority to do it. And so this whole um, task was. Um, we, we had a working group, the, the uh, health and mental health working group of the commission, um, and we had um, four or five um, commissioners. Uh, who were themselves coming from that kind of situation of complex needs, either immediately or had been in it. And we came up with the idea of a pilot um, and that we would, um, and, and the NHS locally agreed to fund it and the Citizens Advice Bureau agreed to host it. 
um, with help from the um, the, the community commissioners and the uh, Morecambe Bay Poverty Truth Commission in kind of keeping the right ethos and spirit. And so we're right um, in the middle of that, but that really happened. So we now have a pilot project in place that was the direct result of um, the work of the commission, which is funded by the NHS at the moment. It is um, being hosted by the Citizens Advice Bureau, who, interestingly enough, our local Citizens Advice Bureau just got a, a huge recommendation, a commendation at the national level for this initiative and the way they're working in partnership, which is very exciting. And um, the, the other aspect of it is that partly coming from this, we have been able to set up within the university, um, the Lancaster University Social Action Research Group, and we've now got researchers working with that project and another researcher working with round two of the commission. So outcomes have been extraordinary. And it's especially the, the researcher who is working with the commission um, this uh, for round two um, is actually a commissioner because they live in at this moment in, in poverty and with mental health struggles. So it's, it, yeah, it's, it's very exciting. I would go as far as to say, both Sue and I would say, that of all the, you know, we've been around a long time and we've been involved in quite a lot of different initiatives in our lives, experimental um, planting, experimental Christian communities, um, et cetera, et cetera, traveling the world with teams of people at the invitation of ex-colonial powers um, to say sorry on behalf of Britain and Europe and so on. But, you know, for us, um, this last few years of... Um, being able to um, play a part in the local Poverty Truth Commission has had for us the most authenticity and integrity in terms of the work of the Kingdom of God that anything else has had so far. That's amazing, Roger. And in this and in this uh, latest example, you know, if this gets taken on as, as more than a pilot, you'll have a sort of systemic thing that it, it, it ensures that people doing those interviews get properly heard so it's that's what we're praying yeah. ensure, ensuring an ongoing listening yeah oh well it's great to talk to you about all this stuff so yeah we'll put it all together and put it out there super enjoyed it miles nice okay. to see you, Bye for now. you soon. Bye.